From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. In recent years, Australia has seen an acceleration in law and order style electioneering. The reality is you know, people are scared to go out to restaurants at the night time because they're followed home by these gangs. This is the greatest commitment in police numbers we've ever seen in this state. The LNP is taking its biggest gamble of the campaign, betting its electoral fortunes on a controversial hardline youth crime policy. At the same time, Australia's incarceration rate has hit a record high. We now have uh, the highest number of people in our prisons than, than ever before. Now, as a global conversation about justice reform continues, there are growing calls to change our approach. Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on who gets jailed in Australia and what needs to change. Mike, over the weekend in Queensland, the Palaszczuk government was returned for a third term. But towards the end of that election campaign, there was a major policy announcement made by the opposition leader, Deb Frecklington. Can you tell me about the youth curfew that she announced and why she thought that would win her votes? Well, yes, as you said, if elected, she promised that her government would impose a curfew on kids in Cairns and Townsville. Today, I can announce that the LNP will introduce a trial curfew for both Cairns and Townsville. Anyone under the age of 14 out past 8pm, anyone under the age of 18 out past 10pm unaccompanied and, quote, without good reason, unquote, could be detained by the police. The youths are laughing in the face of the police officers. They are laughing in the face of the government because Labor are soft on crime. And furthermore, their parents could be fined $250 for the fact that the kids were out. Under Labor, there is no plan to get tough on crime. That is why we must elect an LNP government to save this community. So even by the usual standards of populist campaigning, this was stunningly unsubtle. But, you know, the motivation was absolutely clear. So what is going on in Townsville? Has there been a spike in crime involving young people? Well, yes, there there are crime issues in Townsville. There's no denying that. Mostly, you know, relatively minor things, property crime and such like. But these crime issues have been blown way out of proportion by the media up there. They call it Ground Zero. Any available unit, proceed code two, please, to Mallee Street. In the war against youth crime, right here is where the front line is. The Murdoch-owned Townsville Bulletin, along with, you know, tabloid television have run a long campaign of wild exaggeration. They are all under the age of 15, not old enough to drive, should be in bed. Instead, at two in the morning, they are scoping out cars, robbing homes without fear. The papers and local TV networks have just been full of stories. You see that there is no respect from any of these juveniles anymore. They just don't care. Property crime is in... It has echoes, I think, of the African crime gang's coverage, which we saw in Melbourne and Victoria ahead of the last Victorian state election. A new wave of gang violence is terrorising Melbourne. The Apex crime group is hell-bent on its carjackings, armed robberies and violent home invasions. And now there's a new... You know, the subtext to all of this is that there should be simplistic, punitive policies such as Frecklington's to solve the problem. Except, of course, we know that they don't actually solve the complex problem of criminal behaviour. 
But what they do is work to the commercial advantage of those, you know, populist and right-wing media outlets and also, of course, to the electoral advantage of right-wing politicians. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that a youth curfew, it wouldn't solve criminal behaviour. Why is that? And, And what would the effect of it be? Well, I spoke to Michael Cope, who's the president of the Queensland Council of Civil Liberties, about this, and and he referred me to some comparative studies done overseas. So basically what this study did was to go through and look at whether or not the crime rates went up or increased in the counties that uh, imposed curfews and compared it with what happened in the in the other counties. So basically, it's a, it's a real-life experiment. And what was found was that it made no difference whatsoever to crime rates. The evidence would indicate that they work. They don't achieve what they're um, supposed to do. And so they are, so far as we're concerned, they're just a, a cheap political stunt. So, you know, essentially, curfews don't stop those whose intent it is to commit offences. They still go out and do it. But what it does do is make offenders of the innocent. It essentially criminalises people who who are not really doing anything wrong, except that they're out past their designated hour. The first point is that it is a violation of fundamental rights. It is treating innocent and guilty people the same. We need to do the hard spade work of actually looking at what's going on in Townsville, analysing what the causes of it are and addressing those causes and not taking these measures which are just simply not going to work. So, you know, as, as Cope put it, this effectively would put everyone in those parts of Queensland under the age of 18 under house arrest and on top of that would further entrench disadvantage. How would that happen, Mike? There's a pattern in Queensland, I think we can say, on the evidence and right across Australia, that police disproportionately target Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Certainly a lot of the tabloid focus that's generated around this issue has played up this concern within communities. So, you know, there's a big element of dog whistle here. And the other big worry here is with the threat that fines would be levied against the parents, given, as Cope pointed out, One of the major reasons that the most disadvantaged people end up in jail is because they can't pay fines. So laws like this that by design target marginalised groups more than the rest of the community, they work to justify prejudice and they work to ensure an ever-growing flow of people into prison. And they work so well that Australia now has one of the highest incarceration rates in the developed world. Right. So how does our incarceration rate compare to other jurisdictions? Well, here's a shocking statistic for you. There's now a higher proportion of people in Australian prisons than there has been at any point in over a century, since the late 1800s. Since 2000, the year 2000, the number of Australians in jail has doubled. That dramatically outpaces the general rate of population growth. So, you know, we now rank third among comparable countries, well ahead of all of Western Europe, ahead of Britain, Canada, just behind New Zealand, and of course, way behind the United States in terms of imprisonment rates. Even more uncomfortably than the number actually in prison, more than a third of them haven't even been sentenced. You know, they they haven't been tried, they're on remand, they've been refused bail, and many of them will ultimately not be convicted or sentenced. And many of them stay in there for up to a year or more without necessarily having been proven guilty of anything. This is particularly evident, I would suggest, in the imprisonment rate for First Nations people. It's almost 12 times the rate of other Australians. So it's it's higher even than the rate among black Americans, which makes Indigenous people in Australia probably the most imprisoned people in the world. And 
the growing prison population appears to not be correlated in any way to actual crime rates, you know, despite what the likes of Deb Frecklington might suggest. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, we're talking about how even though the crime rate in Australia is declining, more people are being sent to jail. Why is that? Well, um, first point is that crime rates for most categories of crime have been going down um, for around 25 years, which is to say long before the recent sort of startling increase in imprisonments. So we have fewer crimes being committed, not an adjustment just in accordance with population growth, but a huge blowout of the prison population. I spoke to Nicholas Cowdery about this. He's the former Director of Public Prosecutions in New South Wales, and he's now uh, part of a newly established group called the Justice Reform Initiative, which aims to rectify this situation. Governments are legislating to restrict the discretion of judges so that very often they have no legal alternative but to impose a sentence of imprisonment even if one is not objectively indicated for that particular offence and that particular offender. He makes the point that the relationship between crime rates and imprisonment rates isn't really there. All the research has discovered, he said, only one cohort of criminals for whom locking up large numbers does a lot of good, and that's professional housebreakers. You know, ironically enough, their business isn't going well at the moment because everyone's working from home. Imprisonment rates aren't driven by crime rates at all. They're largely driven by fear among the politicians of appearing soft on crime. There seems to be this hang-up in the minds of a lot of politicians that they have to appear to their electors to be imposing swinging punishments on people who commit even the most minor infractions against the law. And the direct consequence of this fear has been a succession of so-called reforms that encourage the justice system to show less leniency for minor offences and less inclination to employ diversionary processes. How so? Various jurisdictions have made bail and parole conditions more stringent. They've increased the number of offences for which imprisonment is available, they've increased the maximum terms for some offences, and they've constrained judicial discretion, you know, when dealing with cases before them. Think about mandatory sentencing, for example. Plus, of course, the tough-on-crime mindset encourages police to show less leniency and discretion in their handling of of minor offences. The tough-on-crime mindset has sort of taken over the country, I've got to say, over the past couple of decades not just at vast cost to the people on the inside, but at vast cost to the general community, because it now costs about $3.6 billion a year to keep these people in jail. And that cost is rising all the time. 
highest of all in Victoria, where it's $329 per prisoner per day, by far the most expensive prison system in the country. And this is particularly interesting because Victoria also has the highest proportion of inmates who are being held in privately run prisons. Right, OK. And so when we're talking about privately run jails, what issues arise there around accountability in terms of the way the prisons are run and the information that we can get and, and the way that prisoners are treated? Well, a bit of history first. Um, the privatisation of imprisonment began in this country in Victoria in the mid-1990s. Essentially, the argument was that everything ran more efficiently and better when it was run by the private sector. And this has not proven to be the case, at, at least in cost terms. I mean, as we can see, Victoria is still very expensive. System-wide, also, there is little evidence to suggest better outcomes when it comes to recidivism rates in Victoria compared with other jurisdictions. Nonetheless, we keep on spending more money on jails. I mean, in the 2019 budget, the Andrews government announced that it would spend another $1.8 billion, with a B, on new prisons to house an extra 1,600 prisoners. And elsewhere in the country, private prisons have proven to be a failure. There was a damning report from the Queensland Crime and Corruption Commission a year or so back, following which that state decided that it would take back control of its two privately owned prisons. I mean, the Crime and Corruption Commission found there were higher levels of violence, both between inmates and between inmates and staff. There was more drug use, some of it being brought in by privately employed guards, etc. I mean, it was, it was really a very damning report. So, you know, the bottom line is the current model is failing, and that's the case whether it's private or public. Right. So if that is the case, if the system is failing, is there much momentum then for, for change, to look at crime and, and law and order in a different way? Well, um, here and elsewhere around the world, there does seem to be a move in that direction. I mean, Joe Biden at this election is promising that no federal prisons will be privately run anymore. He will take those back into state operation. And even in this country, we've also seen some polling indicating that the public is quite supportive of alternative approaches, you know, particularly for young offenders, for drug-related offences and non-violent crime in general, you know, in summary, more rehabilitation, less jail. So, you know, there's movement there, but I guess that we won't see really big changes until political parties of the right come to see that it's not working for them electorally. Mike, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. My pleasure. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes. Also in the news today, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has won her third state election for Labor over the weekend. Labor was comfortably returned to government on Saturday following a campaign dominated by a focus on the pandemic and related border issues. Australia recorded no locally acquired cases of COVID-19 on Sunday. The last time this figure was achieved was on June 9. The Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt praised healthcare workers and the Australian public for the milestone. And in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has ordered a new national lockdown following a significant spike in coronavirus cases across the country. 
I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.